morning. My name is Francine. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a little nervous, too. <laughs> Seems to run, the, run through the morning. It is wonderful to be here today. Can I move this down a little, or will it mess it up? Okay, because I'm a little short. Thanks. Little. I'm wearing high heels, and I'm so short. Gosh, I didn't expect so many people to be here at 11 o'clock in the morning. I was, uh, on one level afraid that I'd be here kind of by myself. And, uh, on another level I thought, well, maybe there would be people, and then I'd get really scared. Um, and I guess God figures, well, we just have to work through this fear like we've had to, uh, work through lots of other fears. It is a privilege to be here this morning. It really is. And I want to thank everybody that had anything to do with my being present for this weekend. Um, you know, I don't know if um, the sense that I have right now will ever go away. Uh, I'm 13 and a half years sober, and every single time I'm invited to speak in AA, whether it's locally at one of my groups or whether it's at a conference, there's a sense of wonder and there's a sense of amazement that goes through me and there's a childlike sense of, are they really sure? Uh, do they really know what they've just done? And um, I don't know if that ever goes away. Perhaps it does. But I think on some level I hope it never does because I feel like a little kid up here. You know, I feel every time I get a phone call saying, Francine, would you please come join us? I say, thank you, Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, because you guys have given me what I have that makes it possible for me to stand up here this morning. You know, and I don't ever want to not feel grateful. I think part of the wonderment is that I'm grateful for little things today. And uh, I'm really grateful for this opportunity to be here. Um, I want to welcome uh, all of you that are relatively new to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I know there's some of you in the audience. Uh, and just say that you are truly in for the most unbelievable experience of your life. That's sobriety, I mean. It's unbelievable. You do not have a clue what's in store for you right now as you sit here this morning. And I know you don't. I mean, if you're anything like I was when I first called into Alcoholics Anonymous, maybe last night was one of the worst nights of your life. Um, maybe you did something again that you promised yourself you wouldn't do, and yet you did it again. Um, maybe you're still harboring a resentment that's eating you alive. Maybe you're hungover. Who knows? Uh, your hands are shaking, perhaps, and your palms are sweating, as mine are right now. And you're saying, you know, well, maybe it's easy for you to say that this is the best thing that could ever happen to me. I can only tell you that it is. It is. You don't know what's in store. This is the best thing going. If you become willing a day at a time to do what we've suggested in Alcoholics Anonymous, your lives will take the kind of shape that you never, ever could have imagined. Ever. Ever. I mean, I stand before you this morning truly as an example of, of this program, of what it can give to you, but more than that, what it can allow you to give to yourself. Yeah. And that's about what my story is. Uh, often people say to me that, thank you, I think you have the perfect woman story. You know, and I've had lots of people come up and say, well, I would love to have a sponsee of mine hear your story. And you know what I've come to discover over the years is that my story is a people story. It's really a story of hope and inspiration to anybody that wants to hear it, be it a man or a woman. You know, it's about conquering alcoholism a day at a time through the 12 steps of this program and learning how to turn my life around. You know, learning how first how not to drink and how not to use drugs, but then learning how to use the tools that you've given me to make my life what I've wanted it to be all along. You know? Sometimes I think to myself, and I don't even believe that I am where I'm at today and I'm who I am and I'm the woman that I am. I don't believe it sometimes. I don't believe it. And every now and then God reminds me of where I've come from to make me even more grateful for where I am now because I'm... I'm in my life, there are lots of people that have seen me get sober over the years. As a matter of fact, in this audience right now, there are people that saw me when I first got sober. You know? So I can't lie from the podium, even if I wanted to. But there are people that saw me from the very beginning. And I need to have those people in my life because now people get very different friends than me. And it would be easy to forget where I've come from. But I don't want to. 
And uh, being able to share with you this morning is just my way, or God's way, really, of allowing me to remember yet again what kind of story I lived for the 12 years before I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, about a month and a half ago, I celebrated a, a birthday. It was a big one. Uh, I celebrated my 40th birthday. And, um, you know, as I was reflecting back over my life, and I have to tell you, I was really excited about turning 40 in this program. Uh, I grew up during an era when women over 30 were put out to pasture. And, um, you know, today, as I am now deep into my 41st year, I'm proud as a woman. I am proud to be a woman alcoholic. And I celebrate uh, my age, my newness, everything about me. But about a month and a half ago, I was reflecting on the last 40 years of my life. And in particular, I was thinking back about the last 13 of my sobriety. And, you know, I realized I've literally grown up in this program. I mean, I literally grew up in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was an infant when I got here. I was 26 years old, and while by some people's standards that's perhaps old, and by other people's standards that's very young, it's the way I came in. I came in at 26 years old and didn't have a clue. You know, I was a relatively young person who, was, who had an old spirit. You know, I was 26, but I had lived more life than my mother had lived, than a lot of people. And it was really sad because by the time I got in here, I was really tired. And I was ready to uh, let you do it for me or show me how to do it for myself. I need to forewarn you, especially for those of you that have a problem with tears. I um, grew up in the streets of New York, and I grew up really tough. I was one of those tough street kids, and God knows I never cried, because you don't cry. You don't let anybody get that close to you. You never let anyone see you feeling vulnerable. And I got sober, and you guys taught me how to cry, and now the problem is that once I start, I have difficulty turning it off. So uh, I usually come prepared. Normally I have like boxes of tissues up here, but this is enough. Just to let you know, forewarn you. Um, I was born in Atlanta, Georgia, 40 years ago. And uh, I'd like to tell you that um, those very early years of my life, for the most part, I don't remember. Um, and I don't know if it's because I drank and used so much that the brain cells for the most part have been destroyed and I don't remember. I don't know if it's because the God I've come to believe in in Alcoholics Anonymous has been so kind that that God saw fit not to have me remember a lot of the things I did. Um, perhaps I'm still in denial, who knows. But I know that those early years are for the most part a blank except I think the thing that stands out more than anything else is that as a child I always remember that I felt different. As a kid, I grew up in Atlanta, always feeling like there was a big party going on somewhere. And I was on the outside looking in, desperately wanting to be a part of the party. Desperately. You know, and I think for the most part, most of my drinking and using for the next 12 years of my life, from the time I picked up to the time I got sober, was really about learning how to become a part of the party what I wanted. I just wanted to fit in. I didn't want to be better than you guys at that time. You know, I just wanted to be on par with you. There was a television movie on about three years ago, and I like to share this because it pretty much epitomizes how I felt as a very small child. It was a TV movie about Thurgood Marshall, uh, the ex um, or the former Supreme Court Justice that recently died. And it was about how uh, he was instrumental in getting uh, a major court decision uh, to become law. And in this, this television movie, they were, trying to do, they were trying to understand the impact of racism and segregation on small children. And they had this little control group. They had four little kids, a little black boy and a little white boy, a little black girl and a little white girl. And they gave them four dolls and they asked them a variety of questions. And that's the little black girl. They asked her to um, pick out the ugly doll. And um, without hesitation, she grabbed a hold of the little black girl doll. I mean, she didn't think for a moment. She just grabbed her. They asked her to pick out the ugly doll. And when I saw this, I mean, I had been sober a number of years, but the pain of those early feelings just came back as though it were yesterday. 
because I knew exactly how she felt. I knew because that's how I felt all my life, and especially as a little girl, as a little kid, just hating myself so much. Not so much, well, not totally because of my color, but across the board because we were poor. You know, I used to have to wear, you can imagine, I had long hair at the time. And, um, you can imagine. And my mother used to have pigtails and little ribbons, and because we were really poor, my grandmother used to make uh, clothes for us, and I hated it. And then we had hand-me-downs, and I hated it because we were different, you know, because I felt different. And I always felt ugly. And I knew when she picked out that little black doll, I knew that was me. And I think for the next few years, it was about trying not to be that ugly doll. If there was anybody looking at me as a very small child, anyone that was sensitive to pain or sensitive to children, they probably knew that at some stage of my young life, I was going to find something that was going to make that pain go away. The pain of living in my own skin and hating who I was. I remember there were times when I'd gotten older that I would try to scrape my skin. I'd try to scrape the color off, or I'd try to take my mole off, and I would just boot, bleed profusely. The blood would just constantly come out. Because I thought, well, that was a part of me, and I hated who I was so much. But if there was anybody looking at me at this stage of the game, they knew that I was going to do something that was going to make that pain just a little more bearable, a little palatable. And about the age of 14, or before that, my family moved to New York uh, when I was in the sixth grade. I was was six years old when my family moved to New York. And um, it was about that time that I discovered early on what fantasy was about. Um, And that was my first escape in life. That was the way that I found to get out of my own skin, to get out of my own environment. We had lots and lots of books in our house. My mother was a librarian, and um, books and old movies became the escape mechanism for me. I'd pick up a book and I'd go sit in a corner and I'd start to read. And between those binders, I found that I became like a Cinderella. You know, it didn't matter what people thought of me. It didn't even matter what I thought of me. When I started to read, my life was different. I was okay with the world. And it was the same way with the movies. I loved old movies. I loved watching old movies. I'd sit in front of the the television set and I'd watch old movies with Betty Davis and Joan Crawford and Barbara Stanwyck and Susan Hayward. You know, I often hear men in the program talk about uh, John Wayne as being one of their idols or Jimmy Cagney or George Raft. Well, my idols were those gals. The women that had a glass in one hand, they had a cigarette in the other hand. And they didn't take too much crap off anybody, you know. And I needed that. I mean, I was a little kid with a huge hole in her gut, and this was the only escape for me, getting caught up in the movies and the books. And I loved it. I mean, I learned a lot about who I am as a woman from watching those old Betty Davis movies. I learned how to walk. I'd look at myself in the mirror, and I'd hold my cigarette and my glass with my pinky stuck out, you know. And I really mimicked this woman. For years, those were my role models. Today, I'd like to tell you that coming around Alcoholics Anonymous and staying sober, I found different kinds of role models. The ones that have shown me how to have a different kind of look, different kind of behavior, and a different kind of attitude. But that took many, many years for me to first get to a place where I realized that I needed this program, and then for me to become willing to uh, let you teach me how to be a different kind of person. But at that stage of my life, I was still hip, slick, and cool, and I was using Betty Davis and the gang to show me how to function in this world. I am a, a product of the 60s, and so it made it very, very easy when the books and the movies stopped working. It made it easy to pick up drugs and alcohol. Very easy. Um, I don't focus on drugs. It is a part of my story, but it's alcohol that got me to this program. This is Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm real clear on that. But I like to remind myself that um, I, I was a garbage head. Anything that I could use to take me out of myself, I used it. Anything. And I especially need to remind myself of that because all too often I hear meetings today where newcomers, especially, and not just young people, but newcomers in general, justify using drugs in this program because they say, well, the only requirement for membership is a desire to not drink. I mean, I've heard it, and I hear it a lot in New York, where we want to come up with excuses. Uh, 
to do certain things. And I need to just say for myself, for 13 and a half years, I have not found it necessary to pick up a drug or a drink. No chemical. Nothing that changes or alters my mind. But at that stage of my life, I was a human garbage can, and I used anything and everything I could. Because when the books and the movies stopped working, I needed something quick. I needed something effective. And I found it. I found it in the bottle, and I found it in the bag. And because I did grow up in the 60s, it made it just okay. I mean, everybody around me, I grew up in New York, and everyone around me was walking around with a bottle or a bag or something in their hands. And uh, it was almost like it was acceptable, but it wasn't. You know, I, I believe today, as I'm standing here, that had I known what was in store for me, short of Alcoholics Anonymous, had I known that, um, had I known where I was headed for the next 12 years, if Alcoholics Anonymous had not ever become a part of the picture, I would have never picked up my first drink of drugs. I need to tell you that for myself. I would have never picked up my first drink of drugs. Instead, I would have done like so many young people have done today, unfortunately, and I would have blown my brains out. I would have found a way not to live. Because what happened to me for the next 12 years, nobody should have to go through. No animal should have had to go through, and definitely no human being should have had to experience. But that's where drugs and alcohol took me. And while I do not regret my past, I have no desire whatsoever to recreate it. I um, became the kind of woman alcoholic that was vile and that was wretched. You know, sometimes I think back over my life and uh, it's hard for me to believe that that was me. That the person that called into Alcoholics Anonymous 13 years ago was me. I mean, I have so changed in this program, it, it blows me away. I physically look different. I behave differently. I smell differently. I sound differently. I am not the person that called in here in July of 1979. And I suspect if I still was that person, I wouldn't be here. When I first came into the program and I read in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that line about pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, I knew exactly what they were talking about. It was as though those words had jumped off of the page and grabbed me around the neck. I knew exactly what they meant. I had been a woman that compromised herself on a daily basis to the point that I didn't realize I had compromised myself. You know, I, I know there are a few of you in this room that, that had to go down to that dark place. Um, when I came into this program, I thought I would die before I ever shared with you where I had come from. I was so ashamed of what I had become and what I had been willing to do because of drugs and alcohol. I never thought the day would come and I would ever feel clean enough to be able to face myself. And I can tell you, while the key word for me used to be dirty, the key word for me today is clean. And the day the time you taught me how to cleanse myself from the inside out. You taught me that self-esteem came from doing a few of the acts, and you told me that if I continued to behave the way I used to behave in this program, that I would continue to feel the way I used to feel. And that was hard for me to believe, because when I came in here, I was beat up, and I felt dirty all of the time. There were times when I'd come home from doing whatever it was I felt the need to do out in the streets of New York to take care of my habits. And... Um, I'd take showers, and I'd take lots of showers, and I'd use lots of soap, and I'd use lots of water, and sometimes I'd scrub myself so, so hard, I'd have abrasions on my skin because I really would scrub, and I'd hurt myself. And the reality was I was trying to take the dirt, the dirt that I was trying to take off was not that surface dirt. It was not the dirt that just comes off with a little soap and water or the kind you can cover up with a little fragrance or pretty clothes. There's a kind of dirt that says if you lie down with scum, that's what you become. And because I had lived that kind of life, the kind of dirt I was trying to erase from my life was a soul sickness. It was a kind that was attached to the inside. And it didn't come off with a little bit of soap and water. By this stage of my life, I had long since seen poverty. Uh, I found a way out. Is that a hint? Is that a message? 
by this stage of the game, I had um, long since uh, experienced the kind of poverty I grew up with. I found a way out of the ghetto. You know, the reality is, and the sadness of it all, is that the price I had to pay to get those things I thought were so important, um, I now look back on it and I don't think it was worth it. But the price was high. I wanted things. I wanted out of the South Bronx. I wanted to be somebody. That's what I wanted. I wanted to be somebody. And I became willing to do anything to be in that place. Anything. And eventually I got to a place where I had all the things I wanted. I moved from the South Bronx to the east side of Manhattan. And I was surrounded by things. I frequented the right places. I ate in the right restaurants. I wore the right clothes. And I was attached at all times to the right men. There was never, ever not a man in my life that was willing or that was not willing to give me whatever I wanted. But again, the price was high. And so by the time I got into this program, the dirt was really embedded inside of me as well as on the outside of me. And it took everything short of excision to get that stuff out of me, to get that dirt out. But that's what Alcoholics Anonymous has done. It took lots of years and it took lots of time, but eventually I got to a place where I became willing to clean myself from the inside out. But while I was out there, I thought I was having fun. While I was out there, it was the only way I thought I was to go. In 1978, I realized that there was clearly something wrong with the way I was living, and I couldn't put my finger on it. I didn't know. And I had gone to a therapist, and I might say for myself, and whatever I share from this podium is my own opinion, uh, it is the only, or it was the only time I had found it necessary to seek therapy in Alcoholics Anonymous. I found for myself that everything I had needed, I've been able to find in the 12 steps. But I am most grateful for that original therapist because she's the one that guided me to the rooms. She's the one that said to me, Francine, I think you have an allergy to alcohol. Well, if you tell an alcoholic of my type that's steeped in denial that they have an allergy to alcohol, I did what I thought any self-respecting alcoholic would do. And I ran out and I got an allergy test. Now, it's a... that sort of sounds funny today, you know, when I think about it. But if you think about it even further, most of you have been in that place, that place of denial, all it says is that I really was speaking denial. And I went to this allergist and she gave me this, it was like a big head with four little needles and she pricked me to see if I was allergic to anything. And of course I wasn't. I wasn't allergic to anything. The only thing I might have been allergic to was my bad attitude and my bad behavior. And I didn't see. But I went to AA meetings in 1978, and I joined in between. I'd go to meetings, and I'd keep a bottle of vodka in my pocketbook, because at that time, I sort of fell prey to that uh, erroneous belief that you cannot smell vodka. And perhaps some of you uh, relate to that. And I can tell you that um, when I first came in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, you guys knew. You knew. Um, some of you didn't tell me. My sponsors told me. Uh, but all of you knew. All of you knew. And you know, I just want to say, if there happens to be anybody in this audience this morning who um, is drinking or using drugs, I'm so glad you're here. I'm really glad you're here. And don't, don't let anybody tell you you can't show up. I prefer that you keep coming. If you have to drink in between, if you need to get up and go out right now and have a swig, go do it. But show up at the meeting. And if you think we don't know, let me just tell you this. We do know. We may not tell you that we know that you're drinking or on drugs, but we do. And we love you anyway. Just keep coming back. Because you know, had you guys told me when I was drinking in 1978 that I couldn't come to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I wouldn't be here this morning. Because something sunk in. Not a lot, but enough to get me back to the rooms a year later when it was time for me to get sober. I continued to drink as I went to meetings, and I was in meetings in New York for about three months, and then in November of 1978, I moved out to uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, seeking my pot of gold. 
You see, New York had truly been the cause of my problems. And, um, and so I thought, well, I'd leave New York and go to Vegas. <laughs> and uh, life would be better. Think about that for a moment. From the frying pan into the fire. And it was better in a way. I got sober. I got sober in Vegas. And people often ask me today, how in the world could you have gotten sober in Las Vegas, Nevada? Yeah. And all I can say is that when your number is up, you know, when it is that time for you, it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter. And it was my time. In November, I moved out to Las Vegas and I continued to drink and I stopped going to meetings. And I got hit by a car in a blackout about nine months later in June. And uh, I don't remember to date what happened. I do not have a clue. The last thing I recalled was I was sitting in the brewery, which is a discotheque that no longer exists in Vegas. And I was drinking a lot, as I often did. And the next morning I came to in Desert Springs Hospital with my entire body in traps and my leg in a cast. And then, today I walk around with a 10-inch scar on my left leg as a constant reminder of those good old days, just in case I forget the price I had to pay to get here, just in case. And I'm going to tell you, it, it becomes increasingly easy to forget when you're sober a long time, when your life has changed sufficiently. I mean, again, I look different, I smell differently, my profession is different, everything is different today. It's easy to say, well, I don't need to go to so many meetings, you know. I'm sober a long time. I could survive with a couple. Or it becomes increasingly easy to say, well, let the newcomers do the service. They need to get sober. Day at a time, every time I want to get into that mode, every time I'm off the AAB, all I need to do is take a look at my leg, and I'm reminded of where I've come from. But I got hit by a car, and one would think that that was enough to make any thinking person get sober. But we all know, those of us that are real deal alcoholics sitting in this room this morning, that that's not enough to bring an alcoholic of our type to our knees. And it wasn't for me. Being hit by a mere car was not enough to get me sober. Blacked out, broken leg, body entrapment wasn't enough. And so I continued to drink for another month and a half in Las Vegas. And, uh, then what I endearingly like to call that moment of clarity came upon me, and I can't tell you why. I can't tell you why on this particular day something happened differently for me. I don't know. All I know is that on this particular day I, I came to and I wanted to live more than I wanted to die. That's about it. I wanted to live more than I wanted to die. It seems so simple. Today. Especially when I think back to the fact that I was so young, in a sense. I was a child. And I was beaten into a state of reasonableness because of John Barleycorn. And by the time I came in here, I was screaming and I was begging for you to let me in. And I didn't think you guys would. You know, when I got sober, I thought that I was too bad. Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought that um, because I was black, I didn't belong here because I got sober in Vegas and I didn't see at first a lot of black people. I said, cowboys. That's all they had. <laughs> Talk about willing to go to any length for sobriety. I got sober with guys that used to wear 10-gallon hats and huge boots in Las Vegas, Nevada with pickup trucks. Those were their horses, pickup trucks. I mean, I was just this kid from New York City. <laughs> but I was willing. I was coming to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and I had a real tough time when I first got sober because I hated the... I, I was, it was like a bittersweet love affair. I hated being here on one hand because I didn't want to, I didn't want to be condemned to a life of hell. The irony of that blows me away today. I was living in hell every day of my life. I was living in an apartment. I just want to share this. This is my last drink. I just want to go back and just share this because this was the kind of hell I lived in. 
My, the apartment I've lived in was um, in a beautiful complex in Las Vegas, Nevada, called Las Palmas. It was about 22 acres of foliage, and it was gorgeous. It was gorgeous. And I had a garden apartment, and right across from me, outside of my door, was this little brook. And I used to keep little ducklings inside of the brook, and it was so pretty. I mean, it was soothing, it was tranquil. Any normal person could, could appreciate that kind of beauty. Once you came into my apartment, it had the potential of being beautiful. But it wasn't. It was barren for the most part because I had no furniture. And it smelled of animal waste and it smelled of human waste. Because I was totally incapable of taking care of myself or my pets. And on my last drunk, I had come to about 3 o'clock in the morning. I'd come from the doctor's office and he wouldn't take off my cast. And as had always been the case for me, when I didn't get what I want, I showed you. And I went and had a tantrum. And in route from the doctor's office, I picked up three bottles of Blue Nun. Now, I never drank Blue Nun. I didn't drink white wine, and I didn't realize it came in these huge bottles. But I picked up three of them. And the next thing I knew, it was about 3 o'clock in the morning, and I was coming to, with the door to this potentially beautiful apartment wide open. My crutches were on one side of the room. My cats were somewhere. And I was lying in my own waist, a pathetic wreck. I never want to forget that image of me at the very end, ever, ever. Because if I get too far away from that, that memory, I may be tempted to think that I can pick up. Anyway, when I got in here, I, um, I just didn't want to be here. You know, I used to hang out with the people on the side of the room that said, Honey, all you have to do is come in and take up a seat. And you'll get this thing through osmosis. You know? I like people like that. I like to hear people who tell me, or who imply that I didn't have to do very much work. That I just needed to come in and take up the seat and not drink and it would be all right. It would just wash all over me. I ignored people like my sponsor, Louise, who said, if you want what we have, you do what we do to get it. She said, Frankie, this is not a mistake that you are in here. And she said, neither is it a mistake that in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, you will find an entire chapter called Interaction. And she said, it's not an accident, but in that chapter, you're going to find most of our 12 steps discussed. And in that chapter, you will also find the promises. So it's not a mistake. She said, if you want to get to the promises, that means you've got to do the work. You've got to get into action. I said, but Louis, you don't understand. You know... My life is different, you know. You don't understand. This is, you know, this is tough for me. She understood perfectly. And a lot of you didn't know Louise. She understood it perfectly. But I was one of those yes butters. Yes but. And I liked being miserable. I liked hanging out with the people who took inventory all the time. That was one of my favorite places in the room. I mean, I had three seats at all times. And it was usually in the back of the room. What I call the inventory section. And uh, there was a seat for my body, one for my leg, and one for my crutches, and I'd sit back in my chair, and I just dare you to make my day. You know? And I'm going to tell you, there weren't a whole bunch of you that were capable of doing it. And I just sat back with a group who took inventory, and I sliced people apart. I didn't like men at all when I got sober, and I have to tell you that that was a surprise for a lot of people, because I was always with men. Always. I was always with a man. But I found even more so I despised women more than anything. And that was because I hated myself so much. You guys helped me to realize that. I hated myself so much. And so when I heard a woman that was up at the podium who looked too good or who sounded too well or who had any kind of program and she was talking about a day at a time, I behaved differently. I would slice her up. I didn't want to hear that. See, I didn't want to hear healthy women that got up to the podium talking about just for today, I don't sleep with other people's husbands. That just for today, I don't sleep with other people's boyfriends and justify that it's not their husband. Just for today, I don't have to wear see-through blouses into AA meetings. See, I didn't want to hear that because those are the things I was still doing. I didn't want to hear someone that said, just for today I used the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous to be different. I liked the people that would sit back like me and just judge. 
and not do the work because it was easier. It was less painful. And I always found lots of support in AA meetings to do the things that I wanted to do that were inappropriate. Always. I always found people that said to me, Francine, it's okay. As long as you don't change, you can do anything you want. Well, I have to just say for myself today as I stand before you, I realize that for me that's not true. I've come to learn that in the 13 years I'm around. I've come to learn that if I want self-esteem, I do esteemable acts. That's what, I, that's what I've learned. That's what you taught me. And I know that that's a toughie. You know, and it shakes a lot of people, and I have a lot of people that don't like me because of that, and that's cool. But today, when I look at myself in the mirror, the woman that looks back at me is an image that I respect. I hold my head up high no matter where I go today, no matter where I go. And I can go anywhere, and I do. But I feel that way because of what you've given me and what you've taught me how to do for myself. See, I have to do the work. I had a sponsor who stressed from the very beginning that the key, the critical ingredient for my sobriety would be a faith that works under all conditions. And I said, Louise, but you really don't understand. I grew up a Southern Baptist, you know, and I don't believe in God. And she repeated again, over and over and over again, that if I wanted to be comfortable in sobriety, that I didn't have to have a God, she said, but if I wanted to have what some people, I've said, you know, some people had, then I would do what they did, and that was to develop that faith, that relationship with the faith that was. And it was tough for me because i being brought up in Atlanta, and having this punishing God, I just knew that I didn't want God in my life. I mean, when I got sober, the God of my childhood was the God of hellfire and brimstone. It was that old man sitting atop a mountain with a long beard, mandating what I should be doing. And God knows I didn't want to hear that. I didn't want to know from the G words when I got sober. But a day at a time, because of the work I was willing to put into my recovery, that changed. In the very beginning, the said, why don't you simply use my God and just make it a simple prayer like, in the morning, you ask not to pick up a drink or pick up a drug, or in your case, you also include ask that you not compromise yourself as a woman. Just for this one day. Just for this 24-hour period. But she said, if you found at the end of the day that you didn't drink, and you didn't use drugs, and you didn't compromise yourself as a woman, then you say thank you. Not drinking and not using drugs was easier in the beginning. Not compromising myself as a woman was harder. But a day at a time I practiced it. A day at a time I practiced not sleeping with other people's spouses. A day at a time I practiced not being promiscuous as I had been. A day at a time I practiced esteemable acts. And I asked this God to help me do it. And when I found at the end of the day that I had made some sort of progress in not drinking and not using drugs and in not compromising myself, I just said thank you. And she also suggested that I read at the same time pages 86 to 88 in the big book, which is part of the 11th step and there are two prayers there one is when we retire at night and the other is upon awakening and she said just read them every day that's all she said these are your two prayers you ask not to drink use or use or compromise yourself and you read these prayers in the book and interestingly enough as time went by I found that I wasn't acting as this anymore and I don't even know how that happened I found that the day came when it wasn't an act I really started to have some tiny semblance of a faith that was working through me. Now, I must also tell you that my faith has been strengthened over the years through adversity. Every single time I've had something tough to deal with in sobriety, which has been most of the time, my faith has gotten stronger. A lot of us tend to run away when, when tough things happen. We push God away. I don't know why I've chosen not to do that, but every time I've chosen not to do it, my faith has gotten stronger because I've realized I've been able to get through another tough situation. That's how my faith changed. And today for me, God, I would no more do this out than I would not do without air, water, or sunshine, as the 11th step says. 
And it has been that, that key ingredient that has allowed me to do everything else that I've been able to do in the years that I'm sober. That faith that has worked under all conditions. I realized as time went by that um, a lot of that stuff that was inside of me needed to uh, really be cleaned out. I was walking around with a, a lot of anger, a lot of resentment. I was really, I walked around with my face in a pissed off position all of the time. You know, I was like a keg just waiting to be lit. And most of it was because I felt like a victim all the time. Blame was my middle name. I um, realized uh, as a result of doing my fourth and fifth with my sponsor. And thank God for tough sponsors. Thank God for women who loved me enough to call a spade a spade. As a result of my first step, one of the special gifts that came out of that for me was my mother. Um, and I was really glad that last night Ken touched on that. You know, the blame in our parents. I spent a lot of time, a lot of years in and out of this program blaming my mother for what I had become or what I had not become. And I found that as long as I was willing to give the blame to someone else, I was going to stay in the place where I was at. Always. You see, I felt quite justified in that, though. I mean, being black, being a woman, living the kind of colorful past that I had, I felt, well, if you had my life, you'd behave the way I behave, too. And you better than to blame but my mother. You know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, unfortunately, there's a lot of reliance on blame today, so I felt quite justified in that, because I had lots of support. People would help me blame my mother. They would say, yes, you're right. She did that. Or if I'd say, I thought it was a good time, they'd say, well, think about it further. Maybe it wasn't so good. And so I started picking up that whip and beating Rose constantly. And I have to tell you that until I was able to resolve my issues with my mother, I was incapable of having a healthy relationship with anybody, be it a man or a woman. I mean nobody, because every single person I came in contact with, there was me, my mother, and them. Everyone. As a result of this fourth step, I realized, and I can tell you that I'm standing here, I realized for the first time in my life that my mother really did the best she could with what she had. All I wanted was to get her off my back. All I wanted was to just get rid of the resentment. I never thought the gifts would flow that have come about as a result of my willingness to take responsibility for what I helped to create. Today, my mother is one of my best friends, and that is a gift of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's not what I planned. I didn't plan that we'd be so close. Again, I only wanted her off my back. I only wanted to stop hating her enough so that I could have relationships with other people. Today, she is very close to me. That's Alcoholics Anonymous. Right alongside of that, working along, or working through that, the feelings of being a victim was, was really the painful realization that I was responsible for what happened to me for most of my life. And God was that tough to swallow. I mean, it really was tough. Because again, I had what I thought were valid excuses for behaving the way I behaved. For not doing anything with my life. For sitting back waiting for Mr. Wright to save me. For not getting an education. For not doing anything. If you guys would give it to me. And as a result of this fourth and fifth, I realized that I wasn't a victim. That I am responsible. And I must tell you that in, in coming to that realization, there was freedom. Freedom to do with my life what I wanted to do. I'm not going to tell you it's been easy since that point, but God, I know that I'm the one that's responsible today. And my life started to open up at that second year. Within my third year, after my second anniversary, when this all started to happen, and the, and the life I have today is a result of all of that. At two years sober, as a result of this understanding that I am responsible, I decided that I wanted to pursue a career that was going to require about eight to ten years of a commitment. Now, I can tell you that I could neither spell nor define the word commitment. I um, was a high school dropout. Education was never important to me. It was always important to have the right man, and I always did. I didn't need to be educated. I had everything I wanted, so I thought. Again, the price was high. You know, I gave up self-esteem. I gave up soul 
But that didn't matter, because as long as you're drinking, you can cover it up anyway. Who cares about self-esteem when you've got a man on your arms? And that's what I grew up believing. And at this stage of the game, I realized I wanted something more. I wanted, number one, a healthy man in my life eventually. And it was hard to attract a healthy man as unhealthy as I was. Uh, so that, I, I knew I, I couldn't get a good guy like that. But also, I wanted something more for myself as a woman. I wanted something more for me. And so I decided I wanted to pursue this career, and most people in Las Vegas laughed at me. I have to tell you, they thought that I was out of my mind. And I understand that. I mean, I was 28 years old. I was a high school dropout, and I wanted to do what with my life? And I think none of them tried to dissuade me because they had malice in their hearts. I think it was only because they loved me enough that they didn't want me to be disappointed. They thought I would really be disappointed because it was such a long haul, and they didn't think I could cut it. So they suggested, Frenchie, why don't you do something easier like and it's just somebody, wonderful profession, but it's not what I wanted to do. They said, be a paralegal. I didn't want to be a paralegal. Be a nurse. I didn't want to be a nurse. But I had a sponsor who was tough, and there was another man in Las Vegas who said to me, Frenchie, you can do anything you want if you become willing to do the footwork. The sky is the limit. If you become willing to do the work, you can have it all. And I said, but you really don't understand. I understood. I said, I'm willing to do the work. Does that mean you can go out? And my sponsor reminded me over and over again never to forget how the hell it was I was able to go to school. He said, don't forget the source. So I started the meetings every single day. And then in 1986, I moved down to Washington, D.C. to complete my education. And in 1989, I moved back to New York City, having graduated from one of the top law schools in this country. And I think... Thank you. Thank you. That was your gift to me. You guys gave me the courage to day at a time to show up when I didn't want to show up for it. There are people here that uh, literally got me through those, those three years of law school. Sea Island, Georgia. Um, I used to come down every year for the retreat. And it's wonderful to see so many people that I know from there because you guys carried me. And a person who I like to consider my mentor, although I don't know if he would consider himself that, Hal Meyer is, uh, is a member of my own group in Washington, D.C., Rose and Rose, and he's a person I love. So much. Reason those people kept carrying me to those three tough years of law school when I wanted to give up, when I couldn't get a job to law school. Yeah. Just the tough, little nitty gritty stuff. But at every stage of my recovery, I've had people like Hal Marley in my life to help me get through when I was willing to do the work. When I was willing, God constantly put you guys in my life. I'd like to tell you that the three and a half years since I graduated, May of 89, that my life has been smooth sailing. I would like to tell you that uh, I graduated from Georgetown, ran off to a great law firm in Wall, on Wall Street, and just rode off into the sunset. And the reality is, <laughs> the last four years have been a bear. And many of you know, I mean, it has been a bear. I share often, and I share everything I go through on tape. It seems like I don't know about who I am. On my 10th anniversary, right after I got out of law school, I sat for the New York bar. And I had my 10th anniversary chip in my left hand, and I was writing the test with my right. And I failed the exam. My greatest fear was failing the New York bar. Not getting a job and failing the New York bar, I just knew that was a reflection of who I was. But somehow or another, because what you had given me in the years I've been sober, I got the courage to show it for that test again. And I sat for it again, and I failed it again. And I just, I just knew, I mean, this was, this was not what I bargained for. I was sober a long time, I was doing the work, why? And um, I didn't want to sit for that test again. But I knew that if I wanted to practice law in the state of New York, I had to. 
So I did, because you guys gave me the courage. And rooms all over this country, because I shared the message everywhere I went, and each one of you gave me a little strength and pushed me along. And I sat through the test for the third time, and I passed it, and I was admitted a little over two years ago to the New York bar. And since that time, I've been a member in good standing, you know, because of what alcoholics and illness has given me. But then you guys made the mistake of telling me I could have anything I wanted. <laughs> Why do you keep telling me that? I don't know. Because, you see, I believe you. And so I decided that I wanted to um, take another bar exam. And I had to choose the next most difficult test in the country, of course. And I decided to go out to California and sit for the bar. <laughs> Truly a lesson in humility. I failed the test the first time, which was the summer of ninety uh, one. And I sat for it again, and I hadn't decided I wanted to move to California. I mean, I just wanted to take it so that one day I'd have it. I sat for it again last year, and I failed it again. And I'm going to tell you, it does not get easier to fail. The only thing that's different is I'm willing to be in the game today. There are so many of us in Alcoholics Anonymous coming here thinking that our lives are over and we're unwilling to try because we're unwilling, because we think we're going to fail. You know, that's how I was. I was afraid to get into the game and try because I knew that if I failed, that was a reflection of who I was and God knows I didn't want you to think badly of me. So it was easier not to even get in the game and try and then I could sit back and say, well, I didn't really want to do it anyway. Well, I did want to do it. And so I sat for it again. And the people that um, are in my group in New York, the people that are in my group in California, people all over this country got me through the California bar last week. I sat for it for the third time. I, I don't know whether I'm going to pass it this time, but um, I showed up. I never showed up for anything in my life until I got sober. I never showed up. I never showed up for myself, God knows. It was easy to blame you. And it was easy to live in the fear. But I've been showing up for a long time now. And I don't always, I'm not always successful. But I am. Because I show up. I, uh, just made a decision Christmas to move. I'm, I'm leaving New York City. I'm moving out to L.A. in about two and a half months. June 1 is really my target date. And that was a major decision for me. I've been a diehard New Yorker as long as I've been living there. And I've been resident, I've been domiciled in New York for over 34 years. Wherever I've lived, I've always considered myself a New Yorker. The umbilical cord was never, never severed. When I lived in Vegas, when I lived in Chicago, when I was in Washington, I was always a New Yorker first. And in the last year, I have, um, I've become totally distressed living in New York. And it hurts me because it's so sad. A, a big part of me is in that city. A big part of who I've always thought I was is there. And now I'm, uh, ready to move on. This is the first time I've made a decision to move without there being school or something attached. I'm just ready to go. It's been a thoughtful decision for about a year. And to make my transition easy, you guys again have taught me to do the footwork and I do, I do it. I'm not one of those people that sits back and says, yes, I know I have the tools, but I don't feel like doing it today. Well, fine. And then if I'm miserable, whose fault is it? I've been doing the work. I've gone out, I'm out in California all the time now, and I've connected with a home group, lots of groups, but I have a home group. My home group in L.A. is the 7 o'clock Pacific Palisades Fresh Start meeting. And um, I go there every morning, and they got me through taking the bar the second time and this last time, and they were there for me when I failed it the last time. Because I've let them be there for me. I've opened myself up. I've pulled down this facade and let them see who was inside. 
And so they've been able to show up for me a day at a time. So I've got a wonderful support system out there which is making it a little easy to move. But I'm going to miss New York. Fortunately for me, I have to be back here very often, however. I'm, uh, I've always been active in service, and now I serve Alcoholics Anonymous. As well as doing my local service, I serve Alcoholics Anonymous as a director on the grapevine. So I have to be back in New York at least once a month for the next four years while my, while I'm a grapevine director. So I get my fill of the city. And I don't want to live there anymore. And you know, you've given me the ability to make a choice like that. To make the choice and then to be willing to do the work to make it happen. I'd like to share with you another story that uh, is really more about courage than anything else. I have, uh, well, it's now been about a year. Um, the most difficult thing that I've had to deal with in my entire sobriety was last year. I uh, have been given the gift of love through animals um, for all of my life. And perhaps some of you are too new to understand this, and maybe some of you are too sober to want to understand it. But it's, um, it's a special part of my life, and I, it's important that I share it. Um, my cats have always been a special part for me. God put cats in my life to help me learn how to love because I was totally self-absorbed, self-centered, and I was irresponsible. And by having animals in my life, I had to learn how to take care of something. Something. And I had two beautiful cats when I got sober, Jason and Athena. And uh, last February, I had to put uh, my cat of 16 years, Jason, to sleep. And it was the most painful day of my life. It was more painful than receiving notification and I failed all of the bars I failed. It was more painful than getting sober. It was more painful than anything else because all my feelings were there. It was nothing really anesthetized. I was there and I was present for it. But I showed up for it. And I did what a responsible parent would do. You know? Um... After what I thought that I wouldn't get another animal because I was too hurt and too saddened. And then with the help of AA friends, I realized that you guys have given me the gift of love. I have so much love inside of me, it just oozes out of every pore. And I give it away freely. You know, so why should I not share it with more animals? And so instead of getting another one, I got two more. So, now I have three cats in this studio apartment in Manhattan. Dusty, who's my Persian, Spike, who's my little girl, Himalayan, and Athena. I have cats running all around the place. But that's been a gift that you've given me. I am so grateful to be sober. I am so grateful to be alive, and I am grateful to be an active participant in the creation of my own life today. No longer do I sit along the sidelines waiting for you to do it for me. No longer do I sit back saying, well, you know, it's their fault why I'm like I am. Today I've taken hold of the reins because of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today I'm painting the picture of my life. I don't know what the outcome's going to be about any of this stuff. The bar, the move. I mean, today I'm in a place at 40 years old where I'd like to have a baby in about three years. I'd also like to get married. I'd also like to meet the person, you know. And I know that'll come. Because I think today who I am is, I think I bring a lot to the table today. You know, and I know God's preparing this very special person as God's preparing me. I'm present for it, guys. I show up for my life today. You've given me that. In closing, I'd like to read something from AA-approved literature, for those of you that are AA purists. <laughs> it's a bit tattered and torn, but this is my most favorite book. And I have to tell you, I was weaned on the books. I am a believer that the answers are all in the books of Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, I, that's, again, just my opinion. I've gotten everything I, I've gotten from Alcoholics Anonymous. Didn't need to go anywhere else. Because when I was willing, I got it all here. This, Louise had me start to read AA, or as Bill sees it, AA comes of AA, I mean, 
my area of life, as Bill sees it, when I was new because I was always so angry. So what she would suggest is that I read, she, she suggested me that I read everything under anger and resentment. And then she said, read everything under faith and gratitude. And that's how I got into this little book, which is a compilation of pieces from all of our other literature, as well as articles from the grapevine and letters from Bill W. And this is my favorite piece I like to end with. It's entitled, Can We Choose? We must never be blinded by the feudal philosophy that we are just the hapless victims of our inheritance, of our life experience, and of our surroundings. That these are the sole forces that make our decisions for us. This is not the road to freedom. We have to believe that we can really choose. And you've given me the gift of choice. Taught me that it doesn't matter where I've come from. Doesn't matter what color my skin is. Doesn't matter whether I have hair or don't. Doesn't matter whether I believe in God or don't. You know? Doesn't matter about any of that stuff. It doesn't matter what kind of family I grew up in. The only thing that matters is where I'm headed. Where I'm going. The only thing that matters is what I choose to do with the 12 steps you've given me. And today I choose to, uh, I choose to use them to make my life what I want it to be. Thank you for my sobriety and for my life.